tuning in to the World XP Podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please remember to drop a sub, drop a like, and leave your thoughts down below in the comments. With that, we will see you guys in the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Davidson, to the World XP Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. I know I took one of your classes when I was a freshman at Mary Washington all the way back in the day. Um, so it's nice to reconnect a bit and get your thoughts on some of the things that are going on in, in the world, given that seems to be lots of confusion for most normal people who don't live and breathe this stuff all the time. So really excited to get your thoughts on some of these things. Yeah, I'm excited to, to have the conversation. So for those listening who don't know you, you are a professional of international professor of international affairs at Mary Washington. Um, what... I guess if you want to go ahead and expand on the introduction a little bit, um, just for those listening. Sure. So I've been at Mary Washington for, this will be my 21st year, so I've been doing this for a little while. I have a, a PhD and a master's degree from Georgetown University and an undergrad uh, that's in government, basically political science, and an undergraduate uh, degree in political science from UC Berkeley. Uh, in addition to being a professor at Mary Washington, um, recently was made a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in their new American Engagement Initiative, which is a mouthful. Um, it just means that I'm a little bit more engaged in kind of contemporary American foreign policy stuff uh, and not just academic writing and teaching. So research, um, which, you know, we'll talk about a lot of different things today, but my, my research uh, broadly defined is on alliances. Um, so I've written a couple of different books with different sort of takes on alliances um, and looked at different aspects of alliances, but, but broadly defined uh, alliances. And I've got more of a regional specialization in Western Europe, um, but I dabble a little bit in, in stuff outside of Europe as well. Gotcha. So I think that's a great place to start. You do have, uh, is this your most recent book, America's Entangling Alliances? Correct. So the link for that will be in the description for those listening if you guys are interested. Um, but can you go ahead and give us sort of a rundown of the book? And then I think that will take us into a lot of the topics that we will touch on. So um, it seems like a good place to start. So what is sort of a, I guess, an overarching summary of of what you've written about and how you got into interested in that in this area specifically. Yeah. So um, the idea for the book came out of sort of the rise of the Tea Party movement. And, um, and then, you know, as I actually had already started the book, um, really the kind of more prominent role that Donald Trump played in, um, you know, first uh, becoming the, the Republican nominee and then winning the 2016 election. Um, and specifically on the topic of alliances, because there was some, not so much Trump himself, but a lot of the background to those conversations was that the natural state for the United States was one of not being engaged in alliances, right? That the, that the, the founding fathers, and there's references to George Washington's uh, farewell address and Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural, um, where Jefferson argued against, quote, unquote, entangling alliances. Um, and so a lot of people, both some professional historians, but certainly lots of amateur historians, took that um, little bit and said, okay, that means that essentially the U.S.'s default is not engaging in alliances, and we did something really crazy after World War II, 
well, boy, that was a mistake, and so we should kind of get out of it, right? Um, and I already had a sense from uh, my sense of U.S., my knowledge of U.S. diplomatic history, that that was maybe not correct. Um, and then there's also been the introduction. That was something that was really important in my book is uh, for the kind of premise of the starting point of my book, um, that uh, we can think about alliances much more broadly and should think about alliances much more broadly than just treaties, right? So, yes, there are treaties like the North Atlantic Treaty that, that established uh, NATO in, well, what was then um, the North Atlantic Treaty in 1949, um, most probably the most famous alliance that's out there. Yes, there's a treaty um, binding the United States and Japan, for example. But there are also other alliances that we know today and we treat as alliances that are not based in treaties. So the U.S. relationship with Israel, for example, no treaty there. Um, so that's the first part is it's beyond treaties. And then in the book, I looked at really three different kinds of alliances, and that's really the first contribution the book made, um, Yes, there are these defense pacts, which are commitments by the United States to defend another state against attack, but there are also military coalitions. So, again, something that's not controversial at all is that when the United States entered World War I and entered World War II, it was entering these great power military coalitions to fight wars. People recognize that. Well, why, isn't, why wouldn't that be considered an alliance, right? If an alliance is, um, the definition that I use in the book, drawing on other scholars, is that it's an agreement to further your security, right? Well, why did the U.S. enter World War I and World War II? It did sort of to further its own security. And then there's a third category of alliances that I look at in the book, um, which are security partnerships. So you want to think about those as maybe like alliances light, um, so so sort of alliance, you know, minus. Um, so there are lots of coordination and cooperation, arms sales, military basing agreements, um, maybe joint training and exercises. Um, and those have been a, a, another important feature. Um, so the first contribution that the books make, book makes excuse me, is to uh, is really just point out that there have been, um, and I, I document 34 different alliances across um, the history of the United States. But then the second thing, getting a little bit more sophisticated, so I'll just throw this out really briefly, is that, there are alliances that serve different purposes at different phases of American power. So, for example, in the 19th century, really starting with the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, the United States had just become a regional power. So it had just become kind of, a, you know, both um, with interests in the Americas, but also with the ability to kind of protect and defend those interests. And so it engaged in a variety of defense pacts um, in the 19th century, uh, the Monroe Doctrine, the Tyler Doctrine relative to Hawaii, um, the bidlock Reno Treaty, um, that haven't gotten a lot of prominence, but were really important in terms of defending its regional interests, right? So that's going to be very different than the kind of agreements that the United States entered into in um, uh, the, the unipolar era, for example, that we've been in since the end of the Cold War, where alliances, instead of, like, defending these little, like, kind of region, not little, but regional interests, like, you know, maritime commerce and um, naval security, in the unipolar world that we're in, that we've been in for the past um, 30 years, the United States is engaging in alliances for the reason of um, essentially burden sharing, helping out with a lot of its kind of global 
you know, hegemon type obligations. Um, so very different reasoning at different phases of power. I'll leave it at that. That was kind of a gotcha. No, it's all good. It all makes sense. So I think um, you touched on NATO, and that given the current situation in Eastern Europe at the moment, um, one. Uh, so I have two questions actually. One, it seems like right when it happened, everybody was talking about it, and then all of a sudden, people kind of just stopped. Like you don't really hear much about it anymore. Um, one of the reasons that you hear for the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that NATO is getting too close to the borders. Um, I don't, right, having not followed this the way that you do, I have no idea if that holds any merit. But given the research that I, what little research I did, it seems like there could be some semblance of truth there. So in the perspective, from the perspective of the alliances that we have, NATO and, and the other agreements, whether they're in treaty or not, like Alliance Light, like you mentioned, what is what is actually going on here from both the Russian perspective and and the U.S. perspective? Because it seems like we're we being the U.S. are kind of half helping. We're sending money, but I don't really understand why. And so, can you kind of touch on that and sort of what's going on? And if you have some some knowledge of the current situation on the ground, that would be great, also. But just from a broader perspective as well. Yeah, so maybe let's let me take your your initial. So it seems like there's kind of three things there. Yeah. Um, uh, the way I would break it down, one is uh, trying to get some handle on the reasons for Russia's invasion, and mm-hmm. get why is the U.S. responding the way that it is, and a little bit about how the U.S. is responding. Yep. Um. So let me start. So starting with Russia, um, certainly you are right that one of the things, um, of course, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government has said a variety of different things about why they're involved in this uh, denazification, right? Um, they and um, you know, on the one hand, certainly there have been uh, right-wing extremist elements in in particular divisions in Ukraine, but overwhelmingly, I think, and objectively. Um, you know, there's really no validity to the idea that that there are Nazi elements, and certainly um, Zelensky himself being Jewish, uh, you know, kind of kind of suggests that that's that's uh, incorrect. Um, yeah. Now, this argument about NATO, on the one hand, I think certainly there are some there are some more uh, credible uh, uh, arguments that can be made there in terms of the fact that. Uh, Putin and Russia are really just reacting to NATO encroachment, NATO, you know, expansion. Um, the uh, academic John Mearsheimer has essentially kind of made a more a more sophisticated version of that argument. Um, I tend to think that that argument doesn't hold a lot of water, and here's why. Going back to um, uh, 2008, when NATO and the United States basically forced the NATO members to say that someday Ukraine would join NATO. From that date, before that date, and all the way up to today, major NATO members, Germany and France are the two most famous of them, have said they do not support Ukraine joining NATO, right? That was the same in 2008. That was the same in 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine. And that was the same on February 24th of this year when Russia invaded Ukraine. There was nothing looking like it was going to change there. 
Um, no prospect that, that Ukraine would possibly join NATO um, because, you know, the way NATO works is everybody basically has to sign off on it. And it would be one thing, I think, if it was like, you know, imagine that like Albania said, you know, right, okay, maybe everybody else hangs up on Albania. and they, But these are too big, and they're just the most maybe – not maybe the, the the loudest, but they're 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 very, they've been very public mm-hmm. in the lead up to this process. So there was nothing about to change, uh, or nothing even like you can't even look five to ten years in the future and say, well, if Ukraine does X, Y, and Z, that that you know they they could eventually join NATO. It just wasn't going to happen. So it does not explain um, why Putin would do this at this particular point in time. I tend to think, and what I've seen in most of the, um, I think the better analysis, first of all, we don't know for sure because it's really what's in Putin's head. I mean, it's not. Sure. Right. It's all speculation that really. Right. Educated um, speculation. Right. Um, so this is about sort of um, kind of trying to, as much as possible, uh, recreate a Russian sphere of influence like existed in the Soviet Union. So pushing back on the idea that any of the countries essentially around Russia should be independent um, and or even, like, leaning toward the West, right? Um, so kind of trying to recreate that that Soviet Soviet grandeur combined with, and this is where the timing, I think, is, is important, thinking, Putin thinking that um, he, after the Ukraine, after the 2014 uh, uh, actions there that he would just it, it would be a cakewalk essentially right uh, I believe he, he probably was under the mistaken impression from some uh, you know intelligence and analysis he was getting from his military advisors that it was going to be a lot easier and that's why they initially tried to essentially take the whole country and then only when they um, failed pretty miserably in that did they, did they fall back to the goals that they're they're pursuing now um, and I think you know, most people would say that where we are now is that we're sort of in a, in a stalemate. Um, you know, the, the indications that I'm reading are that on a kind of a weekly basis, it looks like, you know, Ukraine has a bit of a leg up in terms of, but, you know, it really depends on where you're looking. Um, I wouldn't expect anything major to shift uh, in, in the near future. Now, why is the U.S. doing what it's doing and what is it doing? Well, First of all, what the U.S. is doing is providing Ukraine with a fair bit of military aid. We're up to about $9 billion. So that's pretty significant, you know, chunk of change in less than a year. Um, just yesterday announced another $9 billion um, in mil- just, excuse me, not $9 billion, sorry, another billion to get yeah. a $9 billion figure. Um, and uh, I just read something today about additional uh, 800 million, so that would get you close to 10 billion total. Um, dealing with things like demining, I don't know whether they're going to count that as military aid and and so forth. But the but the stuff yesterday was all art, artillery and those sorts of things, so very clearly military aid, and designed to essentially because this has become a, a essentially an artillery war between um, Ukraine and Russia to trying to bolster you, Ukraine's artillery capabilities there. And now, um, so. Just one real quick additional point there. What is the U.S. not doing? I mean, I think the Biden administration has tried really hard, and I think they've been pretty successful so far, at not going so far that they provoke sort of Russian retaliation on the United States or Russian retaliation on NATO members. Um, In a way, it's fascinating that 
what you've had happen is the U.S. and all these NATO companies and countries are pouring aid, military aid, and sophisticated firepower into Ukraine through um, NATO member countries, and Russia hasn't reached out against them yet. So, you know, they've tried to kind of find a, a line in terms of the, both the volume, but I think more importantly, the kind of aid that they're providing. So they haven't given Ukraine lots of things that would allow it to go on the offensive. I suspect there's lots of backroom deals where they're telling the Ukrainians, look, do not use, you know, we know this from some of them reporting, do not use these artillery um, systems to actually hit Russian territory in any kind of consistent, um, sophisticated way. So they're trying really hard to limit that um, and, and avoid. So this is, for example, there was this discussion about having a no-fly zone early on. Mm-hmm. I think it was really smart for the Biden administration to um, to say, no, we're not going to do that, because that risks the United States getting into an air war with Russia. Um, so why is it doing what it's doing? Well, I think there's really two factors here to be thinking about. Um, they're both, well, maybe three. The first one, and I think it's, I'm just going to put them in the order that I think is, is um, their order of importance based on what we know, and that is weakening Russia, right? Um, the U.S. didn't cause this war. The U.S., I'm quite sure the Biden administration didn't want this war. But given that it's happened, um, and particularly given that Russia has struggled as much as it has, I think the Biden administration, and the, they've said this both publicly, and there's been kind of repeated background reporting on this as well, that they're really looking at this as an occasion to, to, to essentially cut Russia off at the knees and thus reduce the likelihood that they try to do anything like this in the foreseeable future. And parenthetically, I think that's exactly the right thing to be doing, right? As long as you can do that without getting into, you know, some sort of nuclear conflagration, we can talk about that in a bit, um, I think it's the smart move because they've repeatedly shown that they're, they're willing to, to do this. Now, in addition... You've got a pretty serious, I mean, this is, you know, one of, maybe not the most, but one of the most flagrant violations of rules, you know, norms of international sovereignty since World War II. Um, so that's kind of important. You've, and then you've got, of course, you've got the, the humanitarian crisis um, uh, as well. Um, so, you know, there's kind of this moral outrage and kind of, a, you know, an a, a sense that we need to reset the international or, or uphold, defend international norms as well. But I tend to think that that first factor is probably the single most in fact, important factor in terms of why the United States is doing what it's doing. Yeah, that makes total sense. And one of the follow-on questions to that would be, how do they know where the line is between, like it's not exactly a secret that we're giving them like loads of money. and And at the same token, to maybe, like you said, less important, but we've kind of shown, I think, maybe to a lesser extent with the withdrawal in Afghanistan and, and some of our other actions, regardless of administration, that we're kind of, I guess, we're not enforcing the international norms as much as we used to. And so how much is there this, like, balancing act between showing, like, we're still here and we're still going to, like, stand up for people and at the same time, uh, not provoking into a, a more hot war with Russia, because I think a lot of people here are the people that I have spoken to that are in my age group are kind of tired of us being in like random places all over the place. And like, Oh, I had such and such friend that was a Marine and he was sent to 
insert random country here and it's like why are they like so there's that sentiment as well i how i get there's a there's a, a lot in that but kind of i guess to boil it down to one how are they deciding what or you might not i mean to speculate how are they kind of towing the line of being yes we're still here well with public sentiment being as it is without provoking at the same time how is that balancing act kind of playing out and how do you foresee it playing out as we continue? Because this doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. Right, right, good. Um, well, so I think I, w- I would I would separate what you just asked into two parts. So there's mm-hmm. part about how do you keep it from escalating, um, and and where do you draw that line? And um, all we can really say is that. Again, what they've done so far has seemed to have done a pretty good job of that. I mean, I don't think from everything that I gather, we've gotten close to the point where um, there's a real risk that the U.S. or NATO are going to get into direct conflict with Russia. If there was any, I mean, I think one of the things that's been maybe been important is, um, well, one that I said before, right, which is a limitation on not just the a limitation on the kinds of weapon systems and not giving Ukraine lots of things that they could use easily to go and attack Russia. So a lot of discussion, for example, earlier on about fighter jets, well, that would allow you, right. That would be one thing you can use them defensively, but you can also use them pretty easily offensively. Right. So that's, that's, that's one possibility there in terms of the kinds of weapon systems that were, um, that were giving Ukraine, but also I think a lot of guidance to them saying, look, guys, you know, behind closed doors, if you end up doing X, Y, and Z and you start blowing up targets in Russia, then we might have to reconsider a little bit. I suspect there's a lot of those conversations happening. Um, Is so, this acceptable for Russia, this level of aid at the moment? Like, I mean, it, we can't it, really tell, really. Exactly. That's a, that's a, that's a really good point. But um, it does seem like, you know, in a way, so... I guess let's imagine a couple of different scenarios. Let's imagine a scenario where, you know, Ukraine suddenly starts to really, you know, essentially kick them out of all the parts of Ukraine that they currently control. Because currently Putin has sort of a face saving, right? He's gained some territory relative to the start of the war. I think that might shift a little bit if things were going the other way in terms of his need to do something. Um, I suspect because of the nuclear element to all of this, the fact that both Russia has nuclear weapons, but also the United States has nuclear weapons, that I think Russia is going to be real cautious in terms of what it does if it wants to signal that that NATO or the West has gone too far. So if they get to that point, I think they're going to be pretty cautious in terms of how they do it. Um, so one of the things that I've been expecting all along, for example, that hasn't really happened yet is, you know, a stray... Uh, uh, missile or a stray plane ends up shooting down, you know, some either, you know, U.S. aircraft or, right, they've been pretty good at avoiding that sort of stuff, but if Russians wanted to send a signal, they could do something kind of small like that to say, like, you know, look, guys, you're sort of, you're hitting the limit here. There's probably some diplomatic exchanges along those lines as well. That's, that's I would imagine uh, and, and expect that that's the case. Now, on your other point, because uh, I do think that there's something really important that needs to be said here as well, which is um, I, and I've been saying this actually uh, in a couple of different places for a while now, 
Um, I suspect that your impression when you're talking to people your age is the broader societal reaction. So I don't think there's, I think that is exactly indicative of what's happening and what you said at the outset of the discussion about Ukraine, which is that over time, and we see this historically with crises like this, right? No matter how big something is at a particular moment, a foreign crisis, over time people get sick of it, right? Unless it's affecting them directly. And in this case, the only way it's affecting Americans directly is with higher gas prices, which they don't like, right? Um, but it doesn't tell, in other words, that doesn't tell them to help Ukraine. That just tells them, like, why the, why the heck is this bother, is it bothering me? Like, why, why do I keep having to pay more for gas, right? Um, so, and I do think that moral outrage is going to continue to decline, right? We will mm. expect it to continue to decline. And so over time, that's going to continue to erode the political support for USA to Ukraine, right? You can get away with, and that's, you know, as I said, um, you know, yesterday, announcing another billion dollars. There's a day is going to come in the not too distant future where the Congress is going to say, eh, right? And it might be, you know, this is another important part of our landscape. Um, so you've got the general public sentiment, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing that's really important, I alluded to it before, is the Trump wing of the Republican Party now. Um, and the way that they interpret or, or see the world, right, is through this uh, um, quotes here, but America First lens, which from their perspective essentially says, if it's not directly serving our interests, then why are we doing it? Okay. Some of those people also tend to not see Russia as a threat so much. So um, I know there has been a bit of a split on the Ukraine question in the Republican Party with some people taking a more, um, and, and particularly members of Congress, uh, the, the House of, uh, House of Representatives, some people in the House taking more, some Republicans in the House taking a more uh, kind of like not my problem take on it, right? Well, let's imagine that Republicans win the midterm elections in November, uh, and then they control a majority of the House. Um, all this funding has to go through the House, so we could then expect there to be uh, maybe less funding, because even if, let's say, you know, half or two-thirds of the Republicans still are in favor of funding and they can get some Democrats behind them, right, they still probably are going to have to cut deals relative to other issues and those sorts of things. So I would expect over time, I think, first of all, the sentiment that you are, you know, hearing among your friends is in a it's sort of general kind of decline in terms of how how – um, much attention people are paying to this is going to continue, and that that's going to over time erode the U.S. support for um, for Ukraine. So at that point, if we well, I don't know the split between U.S. funding versus NATO funding or how that would all work, but I would imagine that if we stopped funding or providing aid, that well, I guess it depends on how much Russia has been weakened. Because that was the other thing that when it first, when this whole thing first started, I was like, well, they're going to get steamrolled be- just because of what you tend to think of the Russian military, like without doing any research. But it seemed like much like Putin had, there's been some miscalculations on that. It would be a cakewalk for them just from, from that side, because a certain amount of uh, percentage of Ukrainians identify as Russian and like all these other things. I think there was that sentiment from the U S side that like, it wasn't going to 
there wasn't going to be any sort of competition. And so given the fact that that's happened, is this a, is this a miscalculation on the Ukrainian strength or a overestimation of the Russian Russian strength or both? And I guess to, to follow on with that, is there sort of a line where the Biden administration or whoever is controlling the funding has decided like we've weakened them enough. Public sentiment has waned. Now it's fine to like back off is are all those things sorts of in play as well. And I guess, the overarching question I'm really curious about is like, is the Russian military just not as strong as, as we thought it was? And if that's the case, then I don't kind of, it seems the, the overall, um, right. The unipolar aspect, like looking like it was going to change again, seems to kind of be, maybe it's just by like with China and the U S and Russia is kind of lower than we thought. Is that kind of accurate or what are your thoughts on, on those things? Yeah, no, I think, I think first of all, I mean, to go to where you said at the end there, um, I, when I look at the world today and I look at hard indicators of power, like um, GDP, defense spending, um, the U.S. Is, is still by far in the lead on both of those. Um, China's defense spending is about a third of the United States's, right? Uh, their GDP is growing and projected to reach U.S. levels in nominal GDP terms by 2030, right? So China's in the game. Mm-hmm. I don't think any doubt about that. Um, I would characterize the world we're in as somewhat bipolar, and the reason is that China doesn't really have the military capability to project outside of Asia in any sophisticated way, right? So they can, they can definitely cause a lot of trouble in Asia. They're doing it right now in Taiwan. Um but they don't have the ability to project globally at this point. Okay. Russia is, uh, and I think, and and then I'll come to the Ukraine war, but just in terms of the indicators, Russia's defense spending, on the one hand, um, stands out relative to lots of other countries and countries in Europe in particular, but Russia's defense spending is a tenth of what the United States is. Mm. Russia's economy, Russia's GDP is the size of Italy's. Okay. Is anybody talking about Italy as a great power? No. No. The reason why we talk about, I mean, the one thing that Russia has that those actors don't have of real significance is its nuclear arsenal. It has a Mm. nuclear arsenal, right? So we need to take that seriously. Um, But um, I think, and and it has shown its ability to engage in, you know, um, short, um, what, no holds barred, um, military action uh, like it did in Syria, right? It did it did engage in pretty successful operations in Syria. It's got this Wagner group that it can use to engage in kind of mercenary, um, small-scale, you know, mercenary activities to whatever, overthrow governments and things like that. Um, but it doesn't have anything like great power military power projection capabilities. Um, and... There's lots of reasons for that. So, you know, I think the, the, some of the best analysis, um, analysts of the Ukraine war, you know, would give you probably a 10-point list of all the things that the Ukraine war has shown that, that, um, that they've done wrong. Um, and certainly some of those things are mistakes that you could correct, right? So in that initial phase, um, it, was, it was like everything was wrong. <laughs> yeah. They had eight different lines of attack, which is the, the dumbest thing you could ever do in a situation like that. 
Um, so, uh, but but the bottom line is, yes, Russia is not in any way on the same level as China or or the, certainly not the United States. Was this more of a function of Ukraine being stronger than everybody thought it was or Russia being weaker than every or both? Both. Okay. Both. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think one of the things that some of the, the specialists didn't anticipate is, um, well, two things that happened with Ukraine as far as I've read. One is the some of the learning that happened after 2014. So, they yes, they got some military aid after 2014, but also um, there was some internal sort of learning. But also the kind of the catalytic effect that, that both 2014 had, but then this invasion had on their kind of um, public consciousness and not, you know identity wanting to defend themselves. And so that's something that in some ways is kind of hard to anticipate before it happens, right? Are people going to come together or are they going to fold in yeah. like that? Um, there's a lot of speculation now about Taiwan as to whether or not if Taiwan was attacked directly tomorrow, like would they would they have that kind of catalytic reaction, or would they have more of a not my problem? Um, you know, they they kind of like okay, we surrender, you know, take us over. Um, so it's hard to anticipate beforehand exactly how that's going to play out, but um, certainly it's both. It's both that Russia is weaker than people thought, um, and that that Ukraine was stronger than people thought. Because gotcha. I same. I remember and, and that's what pretty much all the all the specialists at the time were saying was, you know, it's it's gonna be just a matter of time um uh before Russia just wipes the floor with Ukraine and, and it's been it, and, you know absolutely the opposite. Yeah. I think uh the thing that you mentioned about small scale stuff is I think this the thing that people who don't like myself or others who maybe aren't paying or like in the weeds as much as we conflate the two of they have great effectiveness in the small, like uh, the small scale, like intelligence, small scale operations and versus like a large scale actual invasion of a country. And those are actually not the same. Um, but we are moving a bit. So I want to move on to the China Taiwan thing, um, mm-hmm. because one of the things that people let me pull up the, the, the list again real quick. But one of the things that people had um, mentioned when Russia invaded was that we could China is watching our response in, I wouldn't say necessarily say preparation, but if they so chose to take an action against Taiwan to see kind of how we would handle. And one of the things that I saw was they're watching the economic sanctions. And then somebody, I forgot who it was, somebody's like, well, if the U.S. is playing 4D chess, maybe we're holding some in the back pocket for later. Is this, is this sort of a testing ground for China? Is like, are they watching this in that sort of way? Are we at, at a risk for that, or would you say maybe not not as much as people seem to think? Well, I think they're watching this scenario in lots of different ways. But yeah, I mean, they're so you know, I've just been um, uh, reading a, a really excellent book um, called The Long Game. Um, Dashi is the author, um, and one of the things he talks about, which I've read in other places, but how much the Chinese looked at the Persian Gulf War, the first Gulf War, um, the 1999 Kosovo War. Like they studied, you know, and then the 2003 Iraq War, they study all these wars um, that the United States engages in for lessons, right? So they're constantly 
you know, in some ways it would be crazy for somebody for a country of their size to not be learning lessons. So it's really just a question of of what um, the lessons, what lessons they learn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly there are some things that are uh, that might give them pause, and there are things that might, you know, not give them pause. So on the caution side, things that might lead them to be more cautious, um, I think it's been pretty darn surprising, and and again, I think most specialists would agree with this, it's been pretty darn surprising how united the West has been in sanctioning Russia, and particularly the Europeans willing to um, really put themselves in a difficult place from an energy perspective for something that have a direct impact on them, right? Um, so, yeah, this is something that is concerning. Um, and, and like I said, there's the moral outrage part. Um, it's definitely a lot more concerning from kind of a security perspective for the Europeans than it is for us. But, you know, if you're Spain or Italy, right, you're kind of living your life and suddenly, you know, your gas prices, uh, natural gas, is through the roof and, you know, you might not even be able to get some this coming winter. So they were willing to do, those governments are willing to do some pretty courageous, if you think about it, politically courageous things relative to Russia. And so I think if you're China, one of the things you look at is you're like, okay, you know, it may be, because I think this is probably the way that, that Xi Jinping sees the world is like, Maybe that we're going to have to do something militarily against Taiwan, but if we do, we're going to have to build in the cost of some pretty serious sanctions. That's going to happen. It's going, to, you know, and so they're probably thinking about that and looking about looking at ways. Not necessarily, you know, I think this would be a mistake. They're not going to look at anything like this and say, "Oh yeah, I guess we're just not going to retake Taiwan." Right. Yeah. All indicators are that that is going to happen. It's just a question of time. Um, the only thing that would lead it to not happen militarily is if Taiwan's, you know, political system fundamentally changed and they said, oh, please, you know, occupy us. Um, so it's going to happen at some point in time. Um, and, and I think the predictions are between now and uh, 2049, which is the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party takeover. Um, mm, right. Talked about that repeatedly. Um, so... Uh, so that's that's on the economic sanction side. You know, on the military side, I don't know how much learning because it's a pretty different ballgame um, with Taiwan where it's going to entail, you know, amphibious assault and or blockade. It's way more important what they're doing right now, actually, from a learning perspective. They're learning these military exercises that they've been engaged in since the um, Pelosi visit. You know, they're learning a ton from that because they're – Normally, um, their military, their naval exercises are pretty tame and they're pretty limited. And they're engaging in, you know, live fire, very complex, um, you know, air and uh, sea um, operations in the environment that they might have to stage in. So that's going to probably be, you know, as important, if not more important. Um, Yeah. Gotcha. So. Why did so? I saw the news that Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, went there. Why? Why did she? What was the? Did they? I didn't read much on it. So did, did the U.S. government give a purpose for that? So, and this is a little fun um, feature of our uh, our our political system, right? Um, 
you know, the, the, the president of the United States can't really officially legally tell the speaker of the house, like, do not go to Taiwan. Right. Right. Um, now, based on the reporting, what he apparently, what Biden apparently did was said, please don't do this, Nancy. Um, and she essentially said, F you. Um, now, in terms of why she did what she did, because from the Biden administration's perspective, this was potentially, you know, complicating things, potentially leading to a crisis, and they really didn't feel like it was had any value out or benefit. Well, that was the next question, so yeah. <laughs> um, now, uh, why did she do it? Um, she has a long history, personally, of um, supporting Taiwan. She has a long history of criticizing China. And she's got a heavily, um, uh, I guess, it's both Taiwanese-American, but also um, Chinese-American, but critical of, of Beijing constituency in her district. Uh, mm. um, so, you know, some combination thereof. I also suspect very strongly from a timing perspective that she is seeing the writing on the wall and she um, is expecting that she will not be Speaker of the House after November. So this is probably her last chance um, to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll see whether it... I. You know, it made me nervous because I was worried more than anything that they were talking about um, the possibility that China was going to, you know, try to escort her plane. And can you imagine if they accidentally, you know, Oh, yeah, that would have been. Yeah. Um, but once she got in and out of there, um, so far I think it's it's been relatively um, tame, Um and probably more than anything that they're, again, they're using this as a learning exercise. Now, just today, what I read is concern that they're essentially going to keep doing this indefinitely, like starting and finishing. And so using it as a way to um, limit Taiwan's ability to engage in normal air, you know, travel, uh, naval, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, it's almost like a pseudo blockade without actually exactly, calling it that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I read the other day that uh, there was some post on one of the China China's like social media sites that said like prepare for war or something like that. And w what is let's hypothetically move fast forward to like they're gonna do it like tomorrow. What is the U.S. What, like what? Is, because China's a different animal from Russia from the standpoint of like. And also Taiwan is not as strong as Ukraine. So like what so what is the situation there? Are we are we in a position where public sentiment is like we really don't want to do this, like yeah, it sucks, but like sorry? Or is there other stuff that's we that is potentially on the table that we could leverage? Yeah, so fascinating question. I mean, first of all, I guess we could talk about we could talk about, okay, so one thing I think that is important maybe to set the ground uh, with initially is, um, and I'm trying to think at the moment, I apologize because I don't believe I have on the tip of my, um, uh, at the tip of my tongue, the, the polling data on Taiwan questions specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but 
um, what you do have, and this is bipartisan in the, in, you know, in terms of elite um, sentiment in the United States, is a real consensus that China is a threat to the United States. Yeah. Uh, Republicans, Democrats, it's one of the rare things that they can agree on, and you can get legislation through that says, right, you know, we're concerned with China, we're doing X, Y, and Z in order to address the threat from China. Um, so that's potentially in, you know, in the favor of, um, in favor of, you know, more of a robust response. Biden has said numerous times, now this is a little tricky, but what he has said numerous times is that the U.S. would defend Taiwan if it were attacked um, in an unprovoked way. So the U.S. is always very careful not to encourage Taiwan to declare independence. But if we're in this kind of gray zone status quo that we're in now and China were to decide on, it, on its own to attack Taiwan, that the United States would come to its defense. Um, who knows what a, what a future uh, president, if a future president would have the same perspective um, I kind of, what I, what I would bet though, given, um, cause, cause, you know, you've alluded to this earlier with regard to Ukraine and I think it's, there is a general, um, uh, war fatigue or military intervention fatigue on behalf of the American people. So as much as they're opposed to China, I don't think they're looking for a war, um, with, you know, a, a, a powerful country like China. So I suspect that what the U.S. would try to do is something, something more than what we're doing in Ukraine, but something that didn't bring us into full-scale war. And that would be really tricky to pull off in practice. Um, but it would probably, that's, that would be my best bet, um, at least under this administration and then in a future administration Who knows? to see how things go. But, but again, my, my impression is that there's enough bipartisan criticism of China and skepticism of China as a threat to the United States, um, that Taiwan is, and, and you even saw this with the Pelosi visit, right? Right. Um, she was actually, there were a lot of Republicans who gave her, um, gave her credit for going, uh, which is, again, pretty rare for any Republican to ever say anything positive about Pelosi. So, um, so, so that gives you some sense of where the, where the, um, where the Republicans are. Yeah, that's a bit interesting. I want to move that sort of um, bipartisan support in, like, into the unification of the American people. It seems like, I put this in, in the notes in the email as well, but it seems like we're kind of moving into another um, era, at least the way that history is taught and the way that I kind of, like, segment it. It's like you've got, like, the world, like, World War One, World War Two kind of era, and then you've got, like, the Cold War era, and then you've got, like, War on Terror, and it feels like we're moving into, like, a new, a new one that hasn't really been defined yet, but I feel like will be defined by the outcome of Ukraine and then whatever happens with, with Taiwan. And I, I worry from just, like, my own, like, living here is I don't really know well, I, I didn't live through like the changing of eras from the world wars into the cold war. I like, I didn't live through that sort of era and it seems very, it seems nerve wracking to a lot of things. People my age, especially are like, dude, like, we don't know, like what's going on. Like, why are we doing, why are we giving this much money to Ukraine or why are we doing this? Why are we sending people here? So I guess twofold is like, what are your thoughts on like the eras of history? And then two, what is actually, I'll go with that. And the second one is going to be kind of like, I understand both the sentiment from people that are like, why are we still doing this? But then also the same sentiment, like 
we don't have the same culture as other people. Like we don't have the same motivations as Putin or Xi. And like, they might want to, they have aspirations to take over Taiwan and other places. And like, at what points, like we don't, it doesn't make sense to us, but that doesn't mean that they won't do it. So at like that sort of weird balancing act that we have, there's a lot packed into that, but it's just like thoughts that when I think about the U S and its role in the world, that's kind of where I end up. It's like, why are we sending military when we have like CIA operators, for example, who like, that's their job that they want to do that. We can send somebody in to like do something potentially, right. Obviously given situations are different here and there, but what is our, like, we're in, I guess, so I guess to boil it down, entering into new, a new era of history, what are your thoughts on that? And then the U S role moving into this new sort of time. Yeah. So um, first of all, in terms of the new era, I think, I think that's definitely, well, one thing to say is a little bit of, of uh, you know, an admission that it's often the case that when you're entering into a new era, you don't really know until you're five to ten years into it. Um, but uh, I do suspect, as I've said a couple times already, that we are, we are really just looking at the numbers. We are in an era of emergent bipolarity. So it's really going to be about the U S and China. And by the way, the one, one way that Russia still matters in that equation is the extent to which Russia is um, aligned with China. Right. So U S versus China, where Russia is in, Russia is a junior player in the Chinese camp, like China, Mm -hmm. at least for part of the cold war um, before they became more adversarial. So then, you know, the, the current conflict also makes sense as, you know, from that, from that perspective. Now, um, there, is, there is certainly a massive debate in the United States, and I think will continue to be a massive debate in the United States, about what we do in this bipolar world, right? Um, so the kind of two polar opposites – and then maybe there are some variations. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some variations, but uh, might help kind of structure thinking a little bit to think about what some of the alternatives are. So there is a school that is kind of defending what we've are always done, which is we have this system of alliances. We have it sometimes referred to as grand strategy of deep engagement, where we have these alliances. We um, we support our allies. Uh, we maintain those alliances, maybe even grow those a little bit um, in this new uh, bipolar era. So, for example, looking for there's this thing called the Quad, where the U.S. is trying to move toward an alliance with India, would be an example of that that option, right? It doesn't necessarily tell you where you where you are willing to to fight, <laughs> um, but it does tell you that you're going to stay engaged, right? There's an alternative um, grand strategy which uh goes by some different names, but I'll use restraint because I think it's the it's very posing um, uh, at MIT uses that term, and I think it's a really straightforward term to understand, which is that the U.S. pulls back from a number of its alliance obligations, right, particularly in places like Europe where, you know, now the Europeans are all fired up about responding to Russia, fine, let them deal with that. We don't need to be in the Middle East anymore because we got plenty of oil, let the Middle East go don't need to be in Africa, don't have any real problems in Latin America, really only need to focus on China, right? Um, And 
And even then, the restraint people would say, you know, we can do as little as we need to do to be able to defend ourselves and maybe things like, you know, the the global comments. So, you know, to be able to, to engage in naval commerce, and those sorts of things. But, you know, if China takes Taiwan, not my problem, right? Taiwan wants to defend itself, good for them. Um, so, you know, and of course there's lots of possibilities between those two, but that gives you some sense of where the debate is on kind of the big picture of, of where the United States is. Now, the second of those, the restraint, sounds in a way more like the Trump school, but what we saw when Trump was president was, because generally that restraint school goes with lower defense spending, but when in the Trump era we had increased defense spending. So that's why I say that there's some variations and some, some different kind of possibilities within that. Um, yeah. But the, but those, that gives you maybe in, in your, your listeners a little sense of kind of some of the big picture possibilities there. Um, and I suspect we're going to continue to debate this as a society. Um, you know, the, the bringing in the, this, again, America first um, take on things, I think is going to make that an increasing part of our discussion, as well as the fact that China is going to continue, probably going to continue to grow in power, and it's going to continue to get people's attention. Um, so it's going to be the tension between those two, that on the one hand, people are like, hey, we kind of have done enough. We want to spend more on domestic things. We want to do less abroad. We don't want to be involved in foreign wars. But on the other hand, the more China grows and the scarier it gets, that tends to focus people on that problem. Yeah, 100%. I think I see the merits to both to both of them. Like, we got problems here, but also there's problems abroad that we should probably deal with. I think, I don't know if we don't have to get into a long discussion on this because I know we've got to wrap up in a minute, but I feel like we're going to end up with a lot of kind of similar proxy type wars. Um, I'm not sure how, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how that goes. I, I don't really know how, how we'll go about doing that because it seems to be towing the line a little bit between like provoking and not provoking. And I think we're going to be in one of those places where I hope it's not it's another cold war type type deal, but I don't know who knows. Do you have any quick thoughts on that before we, before we wrap up? Yeah. I mean, the, so if I had to bet at this point, I would, I don't think there's anything that's inevitable here, but I do tend to think that we are heading toward a cold war like scenario. Why? Um, so really takes two to three things depending on what you want to emphasize. One is the power situation, right? And we've already established that. So we are we are essentially verging on a bipolar structure in terms of power. So that's a critical initial ingredient. But the second critical ingredient is some sort of real conflict of interests. Now last time there was an ideological conflict that I think is a lot less important this time. That's my yeah. take. I don't think ideology matters as much this time, but Last time there was a conflict of interest, which is, you know, the Soviet Union wanted to, you know, expand, control a good chunk of the territory, expand in other places, was constantly looking for places to do that, and the U.S. didn't want that. Well, what China wants, pretty clear from, again, most of the, um, the, the specialists, is China wants to 
um, essentially sort of erase what it sees as a century of humiliation by retaking Taiwan, by taking full control of the South China Sea. Um, it's got border disputes with India. It's taken territory in Bhutan, right, that doesn't get a lot of press. Um, China is not, you know, I think one possibility to avoid all this would be if China suddenly tomorrow was like, yeah, we're, we're kind of done, we're, we're good, Taiwan, you can go and be independent. That's not going to happen. So um, the alternative would be if the United States basically said, like I was suggesting before, if somebody, a president, future president of the United States came along and was like, we don't care, you, know, you do what you want, um, not our problem. Uh, the extent to which the United States pushes back on any of that. And think about, for example, the South China. Let's leave Taiwan aside. Think about the South China Sea, right? We have a treaty alliance with the Philippines. Chinese have, you know, essentially claimed control over territorial waters that, um, uh, you know, international tribunal has said are the Philippines, right? Um, so they've essentially taken you know, control of seas of one of our treaty allies that we are bound to protect. Well, at some point, <laughs> the United States either has to back that ally up or we have to, like, essentially cut cut it loose and be like, no, sorry, you know, JK didn't actually mean that alliance commitment that we made to you. Um, so those are the kinds of scenarios that I think moving forward, they're not going to go away. As China grows, those things are probably going to multiply those 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 sort of interests, you know, they're going to increasingly be looking for control of resources and um, basing points around the world, and that's going to bring them into more contact and more conflict with the United States. And so I sort of suspect that unless unless the U.S. adopted a, a pretty hardcore, like, okay, we care about defending our territory and nothing else, if we, did, if we don't do that, we're going to get involved in some sort of clashes. And I think you're right. They're, they're likely to be these kind of proxy wars because like in the Cold War, both sides have nuclear weapons. So unlikely that we're going to get into lots of direct conflict. It's going to be more low scale, um, indirect, uh, yeah. type of conflict. Well, hopefully it stays low scale, indirect, and hopefully none at all, but we'll, we'll see. Um, your book, America's Entangling Alliances, in the description below, guys, for those listening. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Could talk forever about a lot of this stuff, but uh, we're both busy people with things to do. So thanks so much. I appreciate it. You bet, Eric. Take care. Have a good one. See you guys later. Bye.